I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. These are the values that guide Exchange for Change, a prison writing project based here in Miami, Florida, and which are found on their website. We believe in the value of every voice, and we give our students an opportunity to express themselves without the fear of being stigmatized. When everyone has the ability to listen and be heard, strong and safe communities are formed. With a pen and paper, incarcerated students can become agents of social change across different communities in ways they may otherwise have never encountered. What follows is an evening of readings here at Books and Books from the 2022 Prison Writing Awards Anthology, the evening sponsored by PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program, along with Exchange for Change. I dare anyone to hear these voices and not be moved, and helping them find an audience is among the most gratifying missions I have as a bookseller. Tonight, we're very happy to have with us Variations on an Undisclosed Location, the 2022 PEN America Prison Writing Awards Anthology. This fifth annual PEN America Prison Writing Awards Anthology represents the indispensable archive of the creativity and intellect of incarcerated writers. It also exists simultaneously as a vehicle of connection with the world and other incarcerated writers across the country. In a day and age of digitalization and short attention spans, the physical presence of this book serves to confront the reader with the human writers who have contributed their stories and hearts to the work within. Several poignant themes are masterfully represented in this work, ranging from the criminalization of homelessness to meta-analysis to what it takes to win writing contests from behind the walls. Writers weave a tapestry from diverse backgrounds, identities, and locales across poetry, fiction, nonfiction, and drama, to portray the most vivid portrayal of the unfetishized reality we all share. The striking cover art, by the way, is by Russell Craig. 
Our event collaborators uh, tonight are the Pen America Prison and Justice Writing, Pen Across America, Miami, South Florida, Books and Books, of course, and the Exchange for Change. But before we get to our distinguished panel of authors, Edwidge Dandycat, Vanessa Garcia, Ryan Moser, Darren Tinker, and P. Scott Cunningham, I'd like to present our moderators. Kathy Clarich, the director of Exchange for Change, is the author of Madam Dread, A Tale of Love, and a contributor to two anthologies, So Spoke the Earth and Women Writing in Prison. In 2010, she received a Knight International Journalism Fellowship to the trained journalists in investigative reporting in Haiti, where she spent half of the last 24 years reporting for print, radio, and television, including Time, The New York Times, ABC, and NPR. Kathy started facilitating writing workshops at the Correctional System in 2009 and began the writing exchanges with academic institutions in 2013. She graduated from the University of Michigan and received her MFA from Lesley University. Poet, playwright, and scholar Malcolm Tariq grew up in Savannah, Georgia. He earned a BA and MA from Emory University and a PhD in English from the University of Michigan. He's the author of He the Hollow, winner of the Cave Canaan Poetry Prize and the Georgia Author of the Year Award and Extended Play. Tariq completed a playwriting apprenticeship at Horizon Theater Company and was the 2021 resident playwright with Liberation Theater Company. A former programs manager for Cave Canem, he's a senior manager for Prison and Justice, writing at PEN America. He lives in New York. Let's give them a warm welcome. Hi, everybody. First of all, thanks to Books and Books, thanks to PEN, um, and really thanks to our readers. Exchange for Change was started um, really without the vision, I think, that we have today, which is that one class with what, 10, 15 students has now grown to a program that has, this semester we have about 30 classes and 350 students. So we have a two-part mission. Our first part is to bring communication skills, writing skills into the prison. And it's not just fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, but it is writing in Spanish, journalism, literature, meditation, songwriting, screenwriting. Um, because the population inside is a microcosm of the world outside. So the interests inside are the exact same that those in the free world have. Um, but the second part of our mission is this, which is to bring the voice of the incarcerated out to the public. And, you know, years as a journalist, I was telling people stories. And the, the power now of having people tell their own stories is really why we have these kinds of programs where it's really important that they speak for themselves. And we do this in a variety of ways. One is that we have partnerships, and a lot of our partners are here today, and thank you so much, from University of Miami, Florida International University, Florida Atlantic University, Co-College in, in Iowa. Um, so we have an academic exchange of writers in a class on the outside and a class on the inside, and they have a dialogue, an anonymous dialogue, about writing. And so their word gets out, and they also understand the people on the outside care about what they have to say. And then a program like this, where you are going to hear from the, some of the writers themselves and then people who are representing their voices. For me, it's emotional for me, so I can only imagine what it was like, because two of our students are here the last time they saw each other was when they were incarcerated. They're now out in the free world and they're going to be reading. So that's enough about our program. P. Scott Cunningham is a poet and essayist originally from Boca Raton. Did I say that right? 
He is the author of Yataveo, um, selected by Billy Collins for the Miller Williams Poetry Series. He has also translated the works of several writers. Um, P. Scott Cunningham is also the executive, executive director of O Miami Poetry Festival, which he's wearing a very cool shirt, by the way. And actually, I want to say one thing about Scott. So um, because of Scott, uh, Exchange for Change and O Miami together started what we think is the first poet laureate for someone who is incarcerated. And we're now in our third two-year term of a poet laureate. We just nominated our first woman poet laureate, Catherine Lafleur. And if you sign up for our mailing list, you'll get her poems when they come out. Okay. Edwidge Danticat is a Miami favorite. Um, she's the author of several books, including Breath, Eyes, Memory, Crick, Crack, and Everything Inside. Her work has been selected by Oprah Book Club and Reese's Book Club. Her memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, was a 2007 finalist for the National Book Award and a 2008 winner of the National Books Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. She's the recipient of numerous honors, including a 2009 MacArthur Fellow, a 2018 Foundation Art of Change Fellow, a United States Artist Fellow, and a two-time winner of the Story Prize. She's also on our advisory board. <laughs> Vanessa Garcia is a Cuban-American screenwriter, playwright, novelist, essayist, and journalist who has written and worked for Sesame Street, Caillou, and other shows. Her novel, White Light, won an International Latino Book Award and was one of NPR's best books of 2015. With Richard Blanco, she co-wrote the play Sweet Goats and Blueberry Senoritas. She holds a PhD from the University of California, Irvine, in creative nonfiction. Ryan Moser is a, formal, is a writer formerly incarcerated in Florida. His work has been published in the Evening Street Review, Storyteller, Santa Fe Literary Review, The Progressive, The Marshall Project, Medium, The Wild Word, and The Startup, and many more. His 2020 essay, Injuries Incompatible with Life, received an honorable mention award from PEN America. DT is a public speaker and writer who found his passions behind bars. After being both falsely accused and wrongly incarcerated for over three years, DT has made it his goal to become an activist for prison education and change. By speaking at universities and events such as Florida International University, University of Miami, and the Miami Book Fair, he hopes to help people see the importance and significant impacts of programs like Exchange for Change. Please welcome our guests. First night. The first of 12,000 nights fell hard. Strangely welcomed after the long ride, the processing procedure that swept up leftover details of the criminal record. Fresh fish, they called me. Can't put you in population. I'll be okay, but they sent me to a cell block. For your own good, they said. We'll see how things go. Things went to Camp D, Raven, tier three right, cell eight. Raven is a working block, 32 men per tier, eight tiers, 256 incorrigibles, sobbers, and fish. My cellie is Popeye, 
He's my age, wild-eyed, adjusted to incarceration, a player into everything except punks. Welcome, he says. It's October, warm and humid. I wish people would stop welcoming me to my endgame. At least you're clean, Popeye says. First jost, want to smoke? Where you from? What kind of time you got? I want to crawl into my top rack and dive. The tear is loud. Conversations bounce from one to the other end. I have a life sentence, Popeye says. He slouches on the footlocker beside the bars wearing boxers and shower shoes. He has Dumbo ears. Picked up a woman in a bar, took her out, and killed her, he says. I was high. You want to get high? I saved my butts in a skull can, conserved my few smokes remaining. Popeye laughs when I pass on his offer, but this guy's weird and I'm on edge. The strokes chilled me in the parish, now they're staring me in the face. I want nothing from no one other than space. Prison doesn't offer much space. I think of home and want to cry, but I don't let this happen. Lights out at 11. I smoke a butt and crawl up top. The mattress and the sheets are thin, but I'm out of gas. Ancient graffiti scratched into the flaking grays testifies that generations of poor bastards have lain here, mind battered, alone, hoping to awake before they even close their eyes. When Needed by C. Fausto Cabrera. I sit to design another tattoo for another little cousin of another little name of another generation I have yet to meet. Cassia is the same age as her mother was when I got locked up. My design fills the void of my presence, my artwork as an offering to be of use when I can't babysit or solve financial problems. It's always names, dates, and flowers of some sort, an appropriate symbol of squandered youth sketched into skin. How else can I contribute to the bloodline? How else to be needed? In my pencil box, there are tools we can't order anymore. Survivors now considered contraband, we call grandfathered. The resources are depleting, and I worry that I'll run out of what's needed. Mechanical pencil leads dwindle, evaporating ink pens, the erasers. The worst is that the world continues without you, and there is tangible mark made between knowing that and watching it happen from a cage. Prison stifles the spirit of most like water to fire unless you're grease. Then the papers shrunk like they could ever inhibit me into an 11 by 14 perimeter that I won't spill over. Graphite smears sinks into the pores of the paper, no longer pure, once marked. But purity isn't a purpose. I can't even recall where I began, but I push and pull, and what's needed emerges with each approaching project. I use the edge of my eraser like a pencil to restore, not to correct, because change is an abstraction or farce, 
adjustments are made through adaptability. I start one place, end up in another with dignity and purpose. The more I use the eraser, the more friction compiles those little dust shards most people just sweep away. But if you collect enough of them, roll and bind them between finger and thumb, you create a new tool, a kneadable eraser. For there are no marks I cannot remake when needed. The Hard Part by Geneva J. Phillips. There is an exaggerated metallic thunking, the air hiss of the heavy gauge locks. I wake as the door-shaped slice of fluorescence swings wide, revealing a vaguely humanoid blob punctuating the blinding brightness. The voice command sounds, Phillips, pack up. You're going to Eddie Warrior. Be downstairs before 5.30 count. I automatically squash the resentful, anti-authoritative default setting and all the unwise responses it elicits. I watch silently as the door swings abruptly close, which with a much softer and less permanent click. I feel the deep and sudden dread of irrevocable change sweeping over me. I look at the cheap clock radio, red number glaring at me. I am glaring at it three o'clock, two hours, give or take, to sort through, pack up, and discard all I can't take with me. The last seven years come down to this moment. I can't stop it any more than I could stop stepping off the prison bus in the first place, any more than I can stop discharging in another seven years. This is actually one of the hardest parts of prison, a part that persists unrevealed to the world at large, it is rarely ever, if ever, discussed among inmates themselves. It is the recurring trauma inflicted with relentless regularity upon the repeatedly traumatized. The ripping away of people being ripped away. 3 a.m. guarantees that no one knows I am leaving. No goodbyes, no closure. There are no healthy entrances or exits to prison life. It is, for the most part, understood and expected, sometimes with disturbing amounts of callousness and disdain, that prison is rife with hardships. The most common of them are discussed openly among inmates and their families, by reformists, and even occasionally by the media. Hardships such as the loss of contact with family, the lousy food, lack of food and viable alternatives for nutrition, lack of opportunities for rehabilitation, personal growth and healing, mental health and medical care, the loneliness, the bankruptcy of compassion and hope that comprise the day-to-day -day reality of prison life. There is, though, a hard part that no one talks about not in prison, and not outside of prison. It is this, the, con the constant re-injury of the wounded, the re-losing of every emotional bond forged over the course of years in a held hostage environment, an environment steeped in abandonment and grief inflicted upon women whose only constancy lies in the constant assurance of more loss. To look at the pervasiveness 
and inherent damage done over the course of incarceration, I'll need to go back to the first point. If you will recall, there are two. One, the ripping away of people. Two, being the one ripped away. It started in county jail. I found myself surrounded with strangers, ripped away from all that was familiar, comfortable, or normal. Let us put aside for a moment the fact that just because something is comfortable or normal or familiar does not mean it is healthy or wholesome. It is still all that is known and all that is desirable in a world turned strange with captivity. All that had defined my life was ripped away, a consequence of my own choice, yes. Does that make it any less traumatizing? No. No, it doesn't. After a year in county jail, the 3 a.m. wake up, the shackles and the belly chains, the, in the indelible sentence, being pulled further into the unknown alone. Going to the new hell, learning the insanity firsthand and all the inevitable lessons of what to do and what not to do, while leaving the expectations of logic far behind, striving to be invisible. An anonymous automaton in the herd, while quietly forging the only thing that can keep you human, human relationships with other humans. Five years later, they begin to leave. I remember seeing someone sobbing, hearing them say, I'm not making friends with any more short timers. I'm not. I can't keep doing this. I understand. I didn't understand. Until then I did. First, Nayeli left. And that was hard. We knew she was leaving, scheduled to be deported back to Mexico when she reached the end of her sentence. She was working at the chapel. We tried not to talk about it. We couldn't, not without crying. How do you lose someone who has been your best friend, gone through the worst of hell with you? I thought my 18-year sentence was immutably hopeless until I saw a 30-year sentence, a life sentence, and life without parole. My hopelessness diminished considerably in comparison to the dust of their hope. And the next year, Sophia left, then Ashley the year after that. Angelina left this past September, and I left in October. All of the short-timer friends gone, and then my turn to leave, which takes me back to the next point, being the one ripped away. I have cultivated the belief that the one who leaves suffers a type of survivor's guilt, and I don't believe I'm wrong. The institution itself discourages contact between the released and the incarcerated, changing the policy from 90 days of no contact to three years of no contact. By mail, anyway, they can't police phone calls, but the phone calls cost a lot more money than a stamp. There are ways around it, of course, but it becomes a hassle. Pictures get caught up and have to be returned. Letters not sent by a person recruited to the go-between from facility to facility. It all conspires to extinguish the ties formed during incarceration. But it doesn't. No matter how many restrictions on contact or whatever loss of contact occurs, it cannot and does not directly affect the emotional bond forged between humans. It only helps to further traumatize and deprive that human of the relational support they've developed during a time, at a time when love, compassion, and common ground were a scarcity at best. 
It is not uncommon for those in prison to forge their own familial ties and designations within the bounds of their carceral experience, many having lost through time, distance, or choice. Their own children, parents, or other family members form new cohesive groups of family on the inside. Kids, moms, aunts, sisters, and even dads and uncles now cling together in a fragile network of relationships founded in mutual loss and hardship. Subject to disillusion upon transfers or release, making every freedom one an equal measure of loss. Making sure even in the victory of discharge, you lose everything. Yet again, always alone. Forced to leave behind the only emotional support you have had for years and knowing that some of the people you have left behind are not able to leave themselves themselves for many years. Sometimes they never will. How do you process this? How do you just forget about the people who, who have loved you, laughed with you, cried with you, cheered for your successes, commiserated your disappointments, especially when those left behind are just as deserving or even more so of a second chance of leaving prison or at least moving forward? There's no winning. There's no happy ending. You can't stay and you don't want to, but you don't want to leave them either. And you don't get to choose. You just have to go. Heart so sore and no help for it. I throw back the blanket and get up to pack. This is an excerpt from the reentry of Lenny Primo. The first thing I heard when I walked into the musky kitchenette was a continuous drip, drip, drip from the faucet. The stained yellow wallpaper peeled down the wall like skin from an apple, and the refrigerator didn't work. A palmetto bug scurried under the greasy stove. Nice place, I told the obese landlady, waiting impatiently. Can you fix the fridge? Ninety bucks a week as it is, honey. Do you want it or not? She picked her nose as I pulled out a hundred and I handed it to her. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. The dirty efficiency apartment in Little Havana was a lifetime away from the beachfront condo I left eight years ago. But this was my new reality after prison. What could I do? When she left, I locked the door and plopped down on the sofa, and a cloud of dust puffed up. I sighed, waved my hand in front of my face, and grabbed the remote, clicked the TV on. Didn't work. Nothing happened. Fuck me. I leaned back and closed my eyes and meditated on my options. So I was starting over with nothing. What was that Brad Pitt line from uh, Fight Club? When you lose everything, you can do anything? Well, I didn't feel so goddamn zen. All that I worked for was gone. The Benz, the Gucci clothes, the elite social circle, my girlfriend, the bling, the connections. God, the connections. Walking into Capitol Grill on a busy Saturday night. Ah, the courtside heat tickets. But all that's gone. What my living girlfriend Lacey didn't take with me when I was arrested, the court said. I lit a cigarette and tried to enjoy my new freedom, but it was hard not to think about the past. I knew I was in for the long haul because the hundred bucks the prison gave me before my release was gone, and I had to figure out an immediate plan. I had a roof, albeit a leaky one, over my head for a week, but after that I was in trouble town. The sun was setting outside, poking through the ripped curtains and casting beams of fixed light onto the chip tile floor. Its warmth penetrated my malaise and beckoned me outdoors. 
I walked down two flights of stairs to a lonely payphone next to the mach- uh, vending machines. They're shattered proof, plexiglass, scratched and denim by would-be thieves. And I picked up the receiver and dialed zero, asking the operator to make a click call and lean back for the inevitable battle. Hello? Hello? Is that you, Leonard? I exhaled. Yeah, ma, it's me. Well, good. I wanted to make sure it was before I hung up. Twilight was waning as I headed down the street towards the restaurant district, trying to get as far away from my efficiency nightmare as I could. After walking over an hour and 20 blocks, I stopped in a small neighborhood joint and ordered a pressed Cuban sandwich with rice and beans and two margaritas, hastily making my way out the front door when the server was in the kitchen. I hadn't eaten in 15 hours and I had no money but the desperation of the poor. Before today, I couldn't imagine stiffing a restaurant in my wildest dreams. Lenny Primo was a man who tipped like royalty, not stole like a peasant. I guess the king is dead. I felt lousy on the way back to my room, but my survival instinct was stronger than the guilt. It was a Friday night and the sun was going down in Little Havana. Musicians serenaded throngs of pedestrians with traditional Cuban songs and bongo beats, reverated off the pastel stucco of the tightly packed buildings, floating into the humid, warm air. Gray-haired domino players sat at card tables and laughed loudly while smoking fat cigarettes, and strings of big bulbs hung from the awnings, illuminating the crowds. I padded my state-issue khaki shorts out of habit, attempting to check the smartphone that no longer existed because I had no belongings. As I got back to the efficiency and shuffled up the stairs to my disgusting digs, all I wanted to do was sleep. When I woke up the next morning, I felt refreshed for the first time in a decade. Nobody prepares you for what it's like to get out of prison and really be alone, really alone. I rolled off my bed, did 50 push-ups, brushed my teeth with a small hygiene pack that the prison had given me before I left, and I drank a glass of yellowish water from the tap. I went outside and stood over the balcony overlooking the parking lot, watching a presumable prostitute talk to a probable homeless man, and I reasoned that I was out of options. When I stepped out of the cab and knocked on the door of 131 Tudor Street, It had been years since I walked through that faded green door of my childhood home. I had ignored Ma's request to to visit before I was locked up, and I felt guilty about it. Seeing my childhood home off Passyank Avenue brought a flood of memories racing back. Sledding on the hill by the corner lot, block parties with my buddies, fist fights at the bus stop, and drinking beers while we worked on my Monte Carlo in the alley. So many good times growing up without a care in the world, before the lawyers and the underground clubs, before the snitches and the loan charts make my life miserable, just boys getting into trouble, having fun. I threw my bag down on the lime green shag carpet and grabbed my younger sister in a bear hug, kissing her cheek and holding her by the shoulders. Look at you, Maria, you look amazing. Her black hair was shorter and thinner and I swear she was going bald, more than when I'd seen her last and she added a lot of weight to her tiny frame, but what are you gonna do? Her face looked older than 35 years, depressingly older. I mean it, sis, you have an age a day. You look amazing. So where are the Rugrats at? Anthony took the kids to, and Ma to McDonald's so that we can have some time to talk. I looked around as she went to the kitchen, unsurprised to see that nothing had changed since we were kids. A large crucifix, crucifix hung from the wall in Ma's living room and nothing else. The quintessential stern Roman Catholic wanted everyone to know that you were entering a holy refuge of bullshit. 
Man, it's good to see you, baby sis. Maria put the soda on the coffee table and lit a long Virginia Slim, tapping the ashtray compulsively with her fake Lee press on nails. You too, Lenny, but we have to have a talk. You're moving in here with Ma so I can paint a part-time nurse. She's somewhat functional independent, but she has Alzheimer's. And it's a progressive disease. She needs regular care and she forgets everything. We have money that Pop left her, but I won't put her in a home and she needs her family. And you're gonna move in here and you're gonna take care of your mother. She deserves someone to, who loves her to be here when she's not well. I put my cigarette in the ashtray and walked into the kitchen, hoping that some of Pop's beer was still floating around, orphaned, shut the door empty-handed, and walked back. All right, sure, sis. I'll take care of Ma. She hood a crooked smile and smoked nervously. There's something else, Lenny. You're not going to like it, but it's the right thing to do. I sat back down and looked out of the bay window to a street and saw a group of pipsqueaks that had talked a teenager into opening up the fire hydrant. He put the wrench on the ground as the kids shouted and ran under the stream of city water, shimmering in the sunlight as it sprayed in the arch over the sidewalk. You remember when we did that when we were kids, I asked her. Yeah, they were simpler times back then, Lenny. So what else? What else do you need to tell me? My stressed younger sister looked, sighed, took a drag of her Virginia Slim. Well, your son's going to move in with you, too. What? You got to be kidding me. I haven't seen him since he was eight. I don't know how to take care of a teenage kid. <clears throat> well, you're Lenny Primo. I'm sure you can handle it. Besides, you got no choice. So I took a drag from my cigarette and leaned back against the 1970s couch, brushed the lint off my chinos, and smirked at my sister's candor. The list of things I needed to know in order to pull this out was long, but I had the resources. My wits. I was used to managing difficult people in impossible situations. All I had to do was supervise a 70-year-old dementia patient and school a 17-year-old hormone machine. How hard could it be? Without You, Silhouetted by Jason Centrone. If you know the look, the math of light uninterrupted, or how it is you describe it, no need to cram our losses into a single vacuum. If you know the glare, light from out, suffusing a freshly emptied room, nook with a ladder, back chair, slid into its table for good. I'm sorry, I'm sorry now that empty means no one or one no longer sorting, fast at the room's undressed window, gradually a thousand pieces into molecular strands of the big picture. Oh, this sort of empty, I'm sorry. I'm sorry now that the space isn't vacant, only feels as much or little. And there is this look of the light, which by its luminous flux, banking, unrestricted off all interior planes, like an uncle shaved his 40-year-old mustache by this unusually glib incandescence. I am reminded, or couldn't we both be, how one person, rest one person's soul, has backed altogether out of the kingdom. Trojan horse butt in reverse and bellied with a tired, a most laconic soldiery. It's radiant days that you and I were beaten by the look, this stabbing brightness in its place.
Lightning Rods by David A. Pickett. There is a certain reluctance among us people in prison and those, yes, I said people, but I mean, what I mean is Travis and Andrew and James, Osama, Davin, H-Town, Black, Shorty, and Rocco, and Red, and Tank, who are on our side. There are sides, yes, indeed, not just left behind or raptured right inside the walls or outside fences caught between defenses and prosecution, so close to persecution. But believe me, all of us are safer with some of us locked up or locked down if fewer than any of us might count to know. Advocates for a more humane, which is not to say more human distribution of justice, which is not to say mercy, to acknowledge that here in this very place where we abide for retribution, punishment, deterrence, or rehab, to be taught a lesson or set an example, this, children, is what you want to avoid in your life, the void so easily filled with story of who or rather what we are or where become if left to our own devices or in the grips of our vices. Never mind the moral complications of punishing Peter save Paul, sacrificing the few to save the all, for certain limited values of all set us apart for our sins. The secular version of our sins, that is, we, having moved beyond the New Testament virtues of love and forgiveness into the grim, dark business of old, eye for an eye, make the whole world balanced in the scales of the carefully blinded justice. We are yet living or alive to be reminded that there are days, hours, minutes, even weeks when we do not, in fact, weep. When we eat food that our tongues might rejoice in, we laugh like men might laugh at a joke that the free world might laugh at or cry when a child is said to die, we hunger and are filled with the bite of a sharp wind roll over and are comforted by the embrace of a freshly laundered sheet. Our sleep, some nights, even sets us free. Hi again, it's been a while. A Fable for Leanne by Winter Sun Lemieux. Once upon a time, there was a boy who was a wave in the ocean. He fell in love with a girl who was a rock on the shore. He thought of little else and longed to be with her. One day, he, he decided to go see her. He went as swiftly as he could, and when he crashed into her, he felt a great pain in his chest. He rolled around on the beach in agony. He believed the girl had broken his heart, but the truth would always be that he had broken his heart against her. He looked to his beloved and asked, how can you do this to me? Then he looked into his heart and asked, how could you do this to me? So having no use for a broken heart, he left it there and began his life as a homeless vagabond forced to roam the countryside, to wander without aim the fields and valleys, the deserts and mountains, all the time believing he was destined to be alone. Sometime later, hermit crab woman happened to come across the abandoned remains she picked up a piece and twirled it about her fingers and thought, this is a fine heart. I bet if I can find all the pieces, it will make a good home. She set to the task of gathering the remains of the boy's heart. One by one, she found them all until she had uh, until she had awe. She began the laborious process of piecing it all together. She took one of her ribs and ground it all to a fine powder that she used to make a paste to glue the pieces into halves. She took some of her hair and she stitched the two halves together 
until the heart regained more or less its original shape. When she had finished, a good deal of time had passed. She was very tired. She crawled into the heart, and she went to sleep. Meanwhile, the boy was making his way through the world. He experienced many, of thing, many things, most of them unpleasant, but a few happy things. Unfortunately, you need a functioning heart to navigate the world, and the boy quickly became lost in the land of in-between, the twilight place between day and night. There is no color in this place. Everything is dull shades of gray. You can only see what's in front of you, and it's very hard to find your way. Sadly, the boy could not find his way, and he became trapped there, where he grew to become a man. One day, through divine providence, or maybe just dumb luck, that man found himself on the very beach where his journey began. He looked around in equal parts joy and disbelief, to be back on his beach, to be home. In his haste, he tripped and fell, face first into the sand. Angrily, he searched for the cause of his fall, and was shocked to discover his own heart, with a woman living inside it. He picked it up to examine it as the woman examined him. He noted the repairs and asked, How is it that you have come to live here? She, repri she replied simply, This was always my home. It just took some time to fix the place up. He knew then that there was no way to separate the woman from his heart, so he placed it all, woman and all, into the empty cavity of his chest, where it immediately began to beat. It was alive. The gray cleared from his vision. He could see the wondrous colors of the world. He drew a mighty breath and let out a deep roar. He was whole once again. Nobody knows what happened then, or how the story ends. Some people say he went to live a long life with the woman who became his heart. Some people say she left him to find a new home, somewhere else. All that's certain is, never again did the man have to go through life without a heart. Can't Win Pen by Brandon Amos. Now, this is an excerpt from a longer play that's set in a male prison, so we got a whole story going here, okay? There's four characters. We have Drew, Trumbo, Brandon Amos, and Robbie, who's a white teacher, advisor, and mentor. So the play begins with Drew and Trumbo seated in a circle of chairs inside the multi-purpose room, painted all white with wide windows that show only a chain fence with barbed wire at the top. They discuss submitting their work to writing contest. Brandon, a newer writer, enters and joins the conversation. After a few moments, Robbie enters from the officer bathroom. He joins the discussion for a bit, then picks up the letters from Penn from his desk and passes them out. Brandon says, hard to be excited when you already know the result. Brandon eagerly opens his letter. Trombo scans his letter, then puts it down with no emotion. Drew reads his letter and shrugs. So Robbie asks, so what's new, guys? Anyone $200 richer? Brandon says, what the hell? All it says is thank you for your submission. We look forward to you submitting again in the future. It doesn't say whether I won or not. <laughs> you didn't win, says Drew. <laughs> Brandon is baffled. He says, I don't, I don't get it. My play was crackerjacked. That, that's what y'all said. It was hilarious. Robbie says, it's OK, Brandon. Just try sending something else. Maybe instead of comedy, you can send in a serious play. Brandon replies, I don't want to write serious stuff. I want to write comedy. Comedies keep my mind out these fences. This is bullshit, man. What? Hey, Drew, what's your letter say? Drew says, I didn't win. All I got was an honorable mention. 
Brandon asks, what's that? says, 50 bucks. They'll assign me a mentor who's supposed to help me with my creative writing, but most likely they'll just hop on my JPay and tell me about some contest to enter in, critique my plays, and offer to send my plays around for me. Rob says, that sounds like we do here, that sounds like what we do here in class. Brandon says, what's your letter say, Trombo? Trombo shrugs and says, same old, same old. Brandon says, man, fuck Penn. They could have gave me an honorable mention. Hell, $50 is like 20 noodles, one summer sausage, two sports soaps, two Crest soaps, two, two Crest toothpaste, one lotion. You know, I'm talking about the good kind. Two orange drink mixes, five ice honey buns, two bags of buffalo cheese chips, two chocolate, two, two duplex cookies, two strawberry cookies, and just to splurge a little, a little bit of Reese's ice cream. Robbie is surprised. He says, sounds like you already had the money spent. Brandon says, I would have been cool if they would have gave me a decorated piece of paper that said your play was dope. I bet they gave some lame, weak-ass play about UFOs or LeBron James to win. <laughs> Trombo says, only plays about prisons win pen. Robbie says, you can write a prison, a prison play, Brandon. Write about your experience inside these walls every day. If a prison play wins, wins pen every time, then that's the formula you should use to write. Trombo says, somebody got to die, too. <laughs> the, group, the group continues to discuss things that might win pen. They speculate that death and rape would be good subjects to lightly win. Robbie leaves. Trombo goes out the bathroom hallway. After Trombo leaves, Brandon says, why is he even here? He, he, every time he comes to class, it's just the same play every week, or he's giving some dry-ass feedback with trying to make some jokes with dark humor. Drew says... I know, but he's won pen a million times. Brandon says, I hate him. Drew, <laughs> Drew says he has that kind of effect on people. Brandon says, why you ain't have my back, Robbie? You, why you have my back with Robbie? You know I wrote a serious play. I gave it to you last week to, to critique. Drew says, I didn't think you wanted anyone knowing about it. Usually you bring plays for the whole group to see. The play you gave me is good. It can work. Is it about you? Brandon says, well, what makes you think it's about me? I mean, the character's name is Frandon Famous. It kind of rhymes with Brandon Amos. Plus, you said you were in juvie. Fran is eight years old in juvie. It just seems coincidental. It's not about me. I mean, you've been in jail basically since you was eight years old, right? I mean, the character was in juvie at eight. Yes, but I, listen, man, I was on the run at 15. So basically, I feel like I've been down there since then. All that stuff in juvie that Frandon went through, while thinking about it, what he was missing out on and missing the outside, I felt that. Brandon shrugs. I got out. I mean, the character gets out at like 18 for three months back in. Drew cuts in and says, I really don't meet a lot of people who came into prison as young as me. Brandon says, that's just a story I came up with off the dome. Drew says, clearly the play is about you. Just embrace it. You've been through, this, you've been through some shit, man. If you write about it, people connect to it. Brandon says, why y'all keep trying to push me to write about shit I don't want to write about? Boo-hoo. I had a fucked up childhood. I guess that means I'm supposed to tell the world how my mama put me in the system because she hated the way I look. Because I look exactly like my dad who abused her. She'll never admit it, but I know that's what really happened. Drew says, it's real. And it happened. Brandon says, oh, oh, you'll love this plot then. How about my white grandparents treating me different than my other siblings because my skin's darker? Oh, no, I got, I got a better plot. I got a better plot. Uh, 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 what about missing school dances and having girlfriends because I was forced to be in detention centers and grow up in homes with teenage kids who did heinous crimes until I was 18? 
Suddenly the world's surprised that I became a gang member, murderer, robber, drug dealer, and everything else they're scared to look at when I pass them on the streets. Man, those are all great play ideas. You could, you could probably win first, second, and third with either of them. Rena says, right, just sell my life to Penn. If I, maybe I win. Drew says, it's not about winning. Brennan says, what you mean it's not about winning? What the hell is it about if it ain't about winning? Drew says, it's about, it's, I don't know, man. I don't know what the fuck it's about. But if you write, you work through shit. Like, like, I, like I wrote Joyride. That was about my mama dying. And, and writing that play helped me heal and deal with it in my own way. So you don't want to win Penn. I wanted to win Penn so that I could have an award just to give my mom to be like, I'm more than just in here. And like, I still want to win, but I, I don't I don't know. Brennan says, I want to feel I, I want to win so it doesn't feel like all the time I've done in here has been for nothing. All the fallouts I had with family, missing kids' births and birthdays. I just feel like I've had all these failures and winning Penn could be my first accomplishment. We hear the toilet flushing in the background. Trombo enters. And from the staff bathroom, wiping his hands with some soft paper towels, and then he puts them in his pocket. Uh, and his pockets are full of soap bars. <laughs> Trombo says, I write to show that people are larger than their convictions, and that one day my children will pick up my plays and see that their father was more than who society said he was. Trombo finishes statement and then exits for real this time. That's why I fuck with Trombo, says Drew. Drew says, I was looking forward to getting some of that soap, really. Drew says, so what are you going to do with that play you gave me? Brennan says, you know what? Fuck it. I'll finish it. I'll send it off to pen. It's not like they haven't told me no already. Drew says, don't write for the win. Write because you're a writer with something else to say. Eventually, somebody's going to listen. it up one more time for our readers and writers. And I just want to say the readers did an incredible job of the voices of the writers. So thank you all, each and every one of you. And to all the people who make our program a success, thank you. Um, on behalf of all of our students, uh, we've reached over 2,000 since we started. We're just finishing up our ninth year um, buy our book, which is called Don't Shake the Spoon. That'll be on the same table. It's got writings from just our students, whereas this is from all across the country. Sign up for a prison visit, please. Come on inside, meet our students, come to a graduation, show their support. It's the best way that they know that their voices are not forgotten. So thank you all. Thank you.